Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2, and verse 5. Philippians, chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. Amen. Amen. Please join with me in prayer once again. Lord God, we approach Thee as our Father, as our Lord, as our covenant God, as our Savior in the person of Christ Jesus. Lord, let that mind be in us to not esteem ourselves higher than we ought. For the one who has a right to esteem himself highly, being God himself, has humbled himself for us to exalt us to glorify us, to save us from our wicked and evil sins which we have committed against Thee. Lord, we praise Thee. Thy name is sweet to us, Jesus. Thy person is sweet to us, altogether lovely, full of hope and joy. May it be more so. Lord, aid us as we study this catechism. Help us not to go beyond Scripture. Lord, but we thank Thee for the truths which it contains, which it echoes from Thy very Word. Lord, we desire to know them more deeply, that we might walk more closely with Thee. Jesus, be magnified and glorified in our preaching and in our hearing and receiving of Thy Word, of our resting in the truth as it is in Christ Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand, to apply, to seek Thee, to rest in Thee. Father, aid us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're in Heidelberg, Lord's Day 14. Last week, we looked at question, or Lord's Day 13, which contained questions 33 and 34, which were, Question 33, why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we also are the children of God? Answer, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Question 34, wherefore callest thou him our Lord? Answer, because he hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. And hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus 
hath made us his own property. Last week we looked at the lordship of Jesus Christ. His deity, that he is the eternal son of God. Begotten from eternity. He has always existed as the eternal begotten son of God. There never was a time that he was not the son of God. But that he indeed took on flesh to die for us, to win our salvation, to execute our redemption. And continuing on in this topic of Christology, the doctrine of the person and the work of Christ, is Lord's Day 14, which is before us tonight. Questions 35 and 36. Question 35, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, taking from the Apostles' Creed. Answer, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin excepted. Question 36. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? Answer. That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. We notice in our catechism three things. First, the reality of the incarnation. The reality of the incarnation. Secondly, the reason for the incarnation. The reason for the incarnation. And thirdly, the comfort of the incarnation. First, the reality of the incarnation. We are asked in our catechism what the meaning is. What the meaning is. For there to be meaning in anything, there must be reality to it. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. We preached an entire series of sermons on the incarnation during nativity. The nativity is the foundation of the Christian faith. That God was manifest in the flesh. That the second person of the triune God became man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The Christ, the eternal word, was made flesh and dwelt among us. In order to live, to die, to raise, and to ascend for us, sinners, lost creatures, rebellious men and women. As last time we saw in our study, Jesus Christ is eternal God and eternal Son. Without the incarnation, we have no religion. We have no faith, no hope, no comfort. All that remains for us, as sinful people, is fear and certain condemnation. The incarnation, however, is a matter of faith. A matter of faith, resting upon what? Divine testimony. Divine testimony. We derive our knowledge of the incarnation only from the Word of God. And we believe this great truth only upon divine testimony, namely the word of God. Now let us notice some of the scriptural truths of Christ's incarnation, which we draw out of this testimony of divine witness to us in the scriptures. First, that Christ is truly man. He's truly man. The incarnation demonstrates this. What then is man? What is a human? We should ask that. A human being is made up of a substantial body which has certain physical qualities and faculties of mind, of a spiritual soul which has a will, 
and understanding and affections. That's a definition of a human being. That's what man is. A physical body with physical qualities and a mind. A spiritual soul that has a will as well as understanding and affections. This is what our Lord took on when he became a man. That's what it means when he took on human flesh. He took on those properties as well. Jesus Christ had a real human body. It was substantive, not a mere phantom. It didn't just appear to be a physical body. It truly was a physical body. It's an early heresy that you see dealt with in the book of 1 John. He possessed all the same qualities, all of the same qualities, which distinguish our own physical substance, our own physical form, from that of a spirit. Jesus Christ also possessed all of those same qualities. Even after his resurrection, because we might say, oh, well, his body changed after the resurrection. Maybe he didn't have a body after that. He could apparently appear in rooms which had locked doors. But even after his resurrection, he said unto his disciples in Luke twenty four thirty nine, he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. He had human flesh, that is, a human body, a real corporeal human body. The eternal Son of God became physical man. That's what we have to understand in the doctrine of the Incarnation, is that the eternal God became a physical human being. True, after his resurrection and ascension, his physical body has undergone the change that all glorified bodies shall undergo, which Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. But that body, that change which it underwent, is still yet a glorified body. He still has a body, though it be glorified. However, his body, while on earth, was truly human and of the same quality as ours now are. And we who believe shall also be then therefore glorified as he is now. So while upon earth, before his glorification, after his resurrection, he had the same body, the same kind of body that we have. And we who believe in him shall have the same kind of body which he now has, namely a glorified human body. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, 21, that God shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. This first statement, that God shall change our vile body, could not be true if his body had not been like ours at first while he was on earth. We could not have any hope that our body should be made into a glorified body like he now has if he did not at first have a physical human body the same as ours. The reason why we have confidence that we shall be like as he is in a glorified form is because he became as we are in a physical form. As all humans, Jesus was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. He was the seed of the woman and was, as Paul writes, made of a woman, Galatians 4.4. We read that the angel told, told Joseph that Jesus was conceived in Mary and, as all men, carried in her womb until the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. What made the conception of Jesus Christ any different? What made it any different than any other human's conception was that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, as the Creed states, or by the operation of the Holy Ghost, as our catechism has it. 
As we read in Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, that is Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. That's what made his conception any different. As to his human body, the Lord Jesus Christ's human body, its divine conception was all that differed from our human body. That's it. Mary was the mother of our Lord's humanity, not his divinity. That's an error of the Catholics. Mary was the mother of our Lord's humanity. She was not the mother of God, but the mother of Jesus of Nazareth. That's who she was the mother of. So in this divine conception wherein Mary conceives by the power of the Holy Ghost, in this divine conception, the work of the Holy Spirit was threefold. Namely, the sanctifying of the body of the Virgin Mary herself for the purpose of our Lord's incarnation through her, that she would hold the the body of Christ within her, the body of Jesus of Nazareth within her, and bring it to full term and then deliver it, just as any other human being is born. So that's the first way that the Holy Spirit sanctified this conception and this birth, causing the Virgin Mary to be sanctified, her very body. The causing of the conception itself was wherein he was sanctifying, and the sanctifying of the child, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the threefold work, the threefold sanctification of the Holy Spirit in the conception and birth of Christ. So Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, was not conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity like as we are, all other human beings are. Hence, he was free from the moral imputation and connection which all men have with Adam's first apostasy, with Adam's first sin. All other men are born that way, but not Jesus Christ, not Jesus of Nazareth. In all of the respects, Christ derived his body just as we derive ours. Our Lord Jesus Christ also derived his human soul in the same way, his human soul, the same manner that every man derives his soul with his body. Now, that entire topic is something that is a mystery beyond all guesswork and all explanation. So we shall question it no further. It would be vain, it would be idle, it wouldn't be profitable to do so, how the human soul works, for it would be to pry into the hidden things of God which God has not revealed to us. This being said, it would be a grave heresy to suppose that Jesus did not have a human soul as truly as he had a human body. It would be a grave heresy. For without either of these things, namely a human body or a human soul, he would not be truly human. He had to have both of those to be truly a man. We are told in Hebrews 2.17, It behooved him, Christ, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. If we want to look for further proof, further proof of Jesus' humanity, of Christ's humanity, that he was truly man, his history as a man, as laid forth in the scriptures, proves this to us, that he was truly a man, a true man, just as we are, yet without sin. Christ gave suck at the breasts of his mother, Mary, He was nourished as any other human infant is. He grew up as a child. 
We read that he went to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old to keep the Passover. He went on a trip. He increased throughout his youth unto the stature of an, of an adult man. He grew up. He saw. He heard. He felt. He spake. He walked. He was hungry, and then he ate. He was tired, and then he slept. He was thirsty, and he drank. He wept. He wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible. He wept. Which shows this blessed sign to us of human sympathy that he truly had. He suffered agony at his passion. And from the garden all the way till his death. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood from his brow. He writhed in mortal anguish upon the cross with his human hands and his human feet pierced through with nails. His brow bled from the thorns that were put upon his head. His side was gored with that cursed spear. He died. He breathed out his soul. He was laid in a tomb. In this history of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that in all these things, he lived and he died just as any other human being does. Just as any man does. He even thought as a man and grew in his intellect as a man. He learned information. He learned skills. He grew in wisdom, the Bible tells us, and in favor with God and man. He also performed all the moral duties which a man has. He didn't wrong anyone. He didn't harm anyone. He rendered obedience to his mother Mary. He rendered obedience to Joseph, to the Jewish authorities, to Caesar, and to God. In all things, Jesus was morally pure. He fulfilled all the religious duties that a man has also. He prayed with strong crying and tears, we read. He devoted himself intelligently and heartily to executing the will of his Father, which was in heaven. And from his Father, he, quote, learned obedience by the things which he suffered, as we read in Hebrews 5.8. Under all of the normal and oftentimes difficult conditions of humanity, he lived as a man unto God his Father on behalf of all men. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was altogether pure. Being the seed of the woman that was prophesied of in Genesis 3.15, he was then therefore conceived of the Holy Ghost. Yet he did not fall in Adam. He was born of a woman, Yet he was begotten of God. Thus, he was our fellow man, but not our fellow sinner. Jesus was our fellow man, but not our fellow sinner. Being sanctified by the Holy Spirit from the womb, he did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, we read. Rather, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Hebrews seven twenty six. Jesus Christ, the man was as a lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1, 17 and 18. Thus, Jesus was truly man, and as Scripture often calls him, the Son of Man, the Seed of David, the man Christ Jesus, the man approved of God, the second Adam. These are titles given to Jesus in the New Testament. 
the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ is an essential creed of the Christian faith. It's something we must confess. For without it, Jesus could never have said in John 6, 52, except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, that is, receive the doctrines of my incarnation and my atonement, ye have no life in you. He was truly human, but he was also truly God. This is the truth the incarnation teaches us. In Lord's Day 13, we already sufficiently demonstrated the veracity of this doctrine, that Jesus Christ is truly God, that he is the eternal Son of God, begotten from all eternity, co-equal and co-essential in divinity with the Father and with the Holy Ghost. We saw that the Son whom God the Father sent into the world to be made of a woman is the only begotten Son of God from all eternity. He is truly and essentially of the same nature as his Father. We reasoned that if he was God before the Incarnation, being the Word which was in the beginning with God and was God, then it must be so that he continues as God after his Incarnation. Because God is eternal, the Son of God must be God from everlasting unto everlasting. That's what the scriptures teach us and what reason and common sense also lead us to conclude. This is why our catechism states, as it did, God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of a man. Thus, Jesus is truly God. But the uniqueness of Christ is that he is God and man, truly God and truly man, in one glorious person. The incarnation teaches us that the man Christ Jesus is both God and man in one person. We read that the eternal Son of God took on flesh. Took on flesh. Thus he became what he never was prior. A man. But at the same time, remained what he always was, God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. That word dwelt, eskinosin, he dwelt among us. More literally, it could be rendered, the word tabernacled, or pitched his tent among us. That's what the word means. Thus, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Christ, the eternal Son of the living God, became God's physical dwelling amongst his people, wherein his glory is laid forth and demonstrated, wherein he holds fellowship with his people. No longer the tabernacle in the wilderness, no longer the temple even, but the tabernacling of Jesus Christ among his people. Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians 1.15, is the image of, of the invisible God. Commentator George Bethune wrote this, quote, He took the humanity so miraculously prepared for a tent, a habitation, a covering under which he humbled himself, radiating his divine glory through it as the mediator between God and man. The writer to the Hebrews calls it the veil of his divinity, the rent veil, that is to say, his flesh. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, he entered the flesh within the Virgin Mary, for the holy thing which was born of her is called the Son of God. Nor was this dwelling only in his body, but in the man Christ Jesus, soul and body, 
in the mind, the affections, and the will of the holy man, using the spiritual as well as the physical faculties of the humanity. For the human obedience, active and passive, which he came in the flesh to render acceptable, because infinitely mysterious, meritorious, was of the soul as well as of the body. End quote. However, this indwelling of the Spirit is not simply an indwelling in the same way that the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers, dear congregation. No. Notice the passive tense, that he was made flesh. He was made flesh. This is the concurrent action of the Father who sent his eternal Son, as well as the concurrent action of the Holy Ghost who overshadowed the Virgin, and the concurrent action of the Son himself, who of his own personal will and by his own personal act came into the world as the seed of the woman. The Trinitarian act. We read in Paul that Jesus took upon him the form of a servant and also that forasmuch as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, he participated in our human nature. In our human nature, he participated. How then should we understand this word took? Took. By understanding it, I think we have the nearest access that we even can have to grasping something of this union of the divine and the human natures of Christ. He took the human nature to his own divine nature. The human nature, both body and soul, in all of its parts, in all of its qualities, in all of its faculties, and in all of its functions, both both physical and spiritual. These all became his own. Not in essence, but in relation, by assumption and addition. Hence, the pains of the man, of the human man, his sorrows, his very death, became, as the scriptures assert, the pains and the sorrows and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way it could happen, is if there's that union. The Christ had to suffer and die. He had to do so as a man. He is truly man, just as he is truly God. This is important. His divinity was not transformed into humanity. This is how we avoid many errors. His humanity was not transformed into divinity. He is still man. His divinity was not transformed into humanity. He is still God. The divinity was not co-mixed with the humanity, nor the humanity with the divinity. Or else, he would be neither God nor man, but something entirely other. Whereas the truth is, the person of Jesus Christ is both God and man. Again, Bethune comments, quote, The divinity was not made less, for infinite, infiniteness is essential to it, to the divinity. The humanity is not made more, for finiteness is essential to it, that being the humanity. He is entitled to all the divine attributes while he dis- disowns nothing that is human except sin. He is the only begotten Son of God, yet he is our brother. The human nature is adjoined to the divine. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, 
God manifest in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. God, yet man. Man, yet God. The God distinct from the man. The man distinct from the God. Else God would have been a sufferer. Or the works of the man being finite in merit. Yet, we repeat, he writes, the humanity is so united to the divinity that he is one Lord, Jesus Christ, end quote. How are, we to, how are we to understand this word person? Person. Much ink and not a little blood has been spilt in attempting to define and understand this word person. For want of a better term, I think, Theologians have described this perfect union of the divine and human as existing in one person, that is, one individual. Many have objected to the use of the term person in describing this union. And if we took the word and its normal, everyday use, we, we would concede that we should not use this word, person. But by necessity, we use the term, and we import a variant meaning to it in theology, namely, that the divine and human are united in Christ, united in one person, a oneness that constitutes the two natures of Christ as one agent or representative for us with the Father. That's what we should understand. That in the person of Jesus Christ, there is a oneness that constitutes both divinity and humanity as one agent, one representative, one mediator between God and man, between us and our Father. The Puritan Thomas Hooker put it this way, quote, In four words, he writes, we may fully, by way of abridgment, comprise whatsoever antiquity hath at large handled. Meaning, in, in, throughout church history, there's been all these debates. We can sum it up in four words. Either in declaring Christian belief, they came up with all of these different debates, or in refuting heresies. And he says these four words are, quote, truly, perfectly, indivisibly, and distinctly. Those are the four words he says can use, be used as an abridgment to sum up this union. Truly, as to his being God. Perfectly, as to his being man. Indivisibly, as to his being of both one. Distinctly, as to his continuing both in that one. End quote. That was Thomas Hooker, the Puritan. So, dear congregation, a more correct understanding of this union protects us from heresy. So this has all been very esoteric, it's deep, it's philosophical, it's theological, there's a lot of jargon involved, a lot of deep thinking involved. But it's important to have as accurate as a conception as we can of what is revealed in Scripture, because it protects us from heresy. Church history gives us a summary of this history of heresies relating to the person of Christ. The Council of Nicaea, which produced the Nicene Creed, met to condemn the Arians. And the Arians denied the proper divinity of Christ. He was, he was made at some point. He was like God. He was not of the same substance with God. The First Council of Constantinople met to condemn the Apollarians. 
who attacked the proper humanity of Christ. His humanity was essentially like a drip of wine in the ocean of his divinity. They minimized the humanity of Christ. The Council of Ephesus met to condemn the Nestorians, whose leader asserted that there were two persons in Christ, the divine and the human. It was a kind of divine schizophrenia afoot. And the Council of Chalcedon, where the Chalcedonian Creed, met to condemn the Eutychians, who confounded the two natures of Christ. Rather than seeing them as distinct, they mixed them. Thus, I think it's good to understand, while we should labor at, at attaining the best understanding we can of these things, we shouldn't push the definition of person or other abiblical terms too far. But we should use them for all they're worth in so much as they aid us in understanding more about God and in growing in our piety, devotion to God, our love to God. That's what they are. They are tools to help us in those realms. Secondly, the reason for the incarnation. So we looked at the truth of the incarnation. Now we're looking at the reason for the incarnation. Question 36 asks this. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? If we pause for a moment, look how it is framed. Look how it is asked. That wonderful word is put in there for us. Prophet. Prophet. Christ came for a reason. For us. For his people. For the sheep of his pasture. For us, his, his children. To set us free from captivity. To wash away our sins. To die on our behalf. To reconcile us to himself. This is prophet. He came to Profit us, those who were unprofitable in ourselves, those who deserved no divine aid, no divine mercy, but only divine wrath, which we had justly earned. The wages, that which we have, should receive as payment for our sins, is death, is wrath, is condemnation. What profit? And this is again why I love the Heidelberg. It gets us to ask the question, what profit do we receive? Theology is not theory. It's not theatrics. It's life. It's practice. It's doing, living, enjoying mm-hmm. God forever. Amen. It's not mere theatrics or theory. The Catechism answers this question, what profit we receive by the Incarnation. Answer, that He is our mediator, and with His innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. It does something. Jesus came to do something, to accomplish something, to profit his people. He didn't come to give us something to think about, to argue about, to debate about, to store up knowledge in our brains about. No, he came to first restore fellowship between God and man. As sinner, man can have no fellowship with God nor God with him. Man cannot approach unto God because of his sins. He's a rebellion against God. He hates God. He resists God. He turns away and against God. Therefore, if fellowship is to be restored, if there's to be reconciliation at all, we know that it must come from God to man, not man making his way up to God. On the other hand, God in his holiness 
cannot approach the sinner without destroying him. Remember in Habakkuk, we write, we read, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look upon iniquity. It must be taken out of his sight. Therefore, there must be an intervention of some pure medium, some pure mediator between holy God and sinful man. One who, was, who is equal with God and yet equal with man. Someone who may put his hand on both and unite them. That mediator is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, we behold God united to humanity, but to a now sinless humanity. Not just to any humanity, but to a sinless humanity. And in Christ, we behold a humanity united to God, a humanity united to God in loving kindness and tender mercy, though. In his incarnation, in the incarnate only begotten Son, God looks with good pleasure upon us men. And man looks with penitent confidence on God, who is represented to him by our older brother, Jesus Christ. As God, the blessed Christ, enters into the wisdom of God and is his counselor. As man, Christ assures the believer of his kindred and his redeemer, coming to redeem us. Thus, through the incarnation and through it alone, man and God are restored to loving and pleasant fellowship. That's what he came to accomplish. That's what he came to do. And it is finished. We also see that he came to accomplish all that was necessary for reconciliation. So he came to restore reconciliation, to make a way for God and man to be fellowshipping again, to be back in fellowship. But he also came to do all that was necessary for that to even take place. For God is just, and his justice is not cast aside in our reconciliation, is it? God was not merciful to us while neglecting his justice. He cannot do so. It is impossible. If it were so that God could be merciful to man while not being just, he would not be God. He did not simply forgive. Forgive and forget. All that was necessary for God to be merciful, for redemption and reconciliation to take place between God and man, must be satisfied if it's to happen. And in the incarnate Son, this is and has been accomplished. God demonstrates his justice and his wrath towards sinners in the cross of Christ. And his justice is there on that tree, satisfied on their behalf. The righteousness that is required to hold fellowship with God is obtained by the incarnate Son throughout his life, living in obedience to his Father, and then is imputed to those who believe. Thus, God can now have mercy upon sinners without spurning his own justice. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. Scripture tells us this. He, being God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Paul also writes in another place, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Galatians 3.13. A substitute. A substitute had to be given on our behalf, dear congregation. It was necessary that this substitute be divine. For every creature is subject to God and requires all of his powers to discharge his duty which he owes to God. It was necessary that he should be in the form of a servant also. For God himself cannot be under his own law in that sense. It was necessary that he should be a man because man was the sinner that needed to be redeemed. It was necessary that he should be a man in order to magnify the law that was given to man. Because that was the law which he had dishonored, which man had dishonored. So a man needed to keep it on behalf of other men. It was necessary that the penalty of the law should be endured in the nature of a man. And in the sphere of his rebellion, i.e. humanity. Because here, the curse of the law had passed upon human nature. Hence, Jesus was made man. But it was also necessary that an infinite merit should be communicated to the obedience and sufferings of the substitute who operates in human nature. Thus, he had to be divine. So that the divinity might permeate all the actions of the humanity in the actions of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. In this way, the law was honored infinitely more than the obedience or eternal punishment of a whole world in this perfect union of God and man in the one person of Jesus Christ. At the start of our service, we read about the vision that Jacob had. The vision that Jacob had. Wherein the angels of God are ascending and descending from heaven to earth. Because of this vision, he named the place Bethel, which means house of God. The reason is, he said that surely the Lord, surely Jehovah is in this place. Now, Jesus, as we read, also makes allusion to this story. And he applies it to himself in the first chapter of John's Gospel. Dear congregation, by his atoning merit, Christ hath taken away the rod of God's wrath. And now, having passed into the heavens for us, his flesh, once torn on the cross, becomes a new and living way for us. A new and living way, which he has consecrated for us by his blood. And through this new and living way, we have access with boldness unto God. Even unto his throne, we read. Christ is the reality, the fulfillment, the actuality of that ladder which Jacob saw, whose top rested on heaven while it was still set on earth, by which our prayers also ascend to God and the blessings of God descend to us. Jesus Christ is that ladder. That's why we say, Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus This is prophet. 
What prophet do we have? This is the prophet that we have. That we can climb that ladder. Not of our own, volition, not of our own works, not of our own deeds, but of Christ's merit. Again, this is not mere theology. This is not mere brain work. This is true, experiential, practical life work. We are reconciled to God. Third, the comfort of this incarnation. The comfort that it brings us. First, it brings us restored fellowship between God and man. Dear believer, dear believer, take thou great comfort in the incarnation. Because of it, thou hast reconciliation with God. Not only art thou no longer under the penalty of thy sins, not only shalt thou have heaven, not only shalt thou evade hell, but thou art reconciled to thy God, dear believer. Thou hast him as thy bosom love, we read. Thou canst now fulfill thy chief end of glorifying and enjoying God forever in sweet, blood-bought communion. Thou canst freely approach his throne day and night, even with boldness, laying hold of the promises of God which thy Savior, Jesus Christ, has obtained for thee. Dear believer, thou art called upward into prayer, into the enjoyment of the means of grace, into love and fellowship with thy Father. Do not waste this honor, dear Christian. Go to thy God and rest in him often. Make his presence thy chief delight. Make his presence thy home. That's how we profit from this. This is how we turn it into practice, that we have comfort. Rest in that comfort. Rest in that comfort. Use that comfort. Apply that comfort. That we have a restored relationship between God and us. Another comfort of the incarnation that is, is that it suckers us in our afflictions. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the God-man, teaches us that we must and can take great encouragement in our afflictions. In our very afflictions. He can aid us in our temptations, our trials, our afflictions, and our sufferings. The cross which he lays upon us, we are to pick up and carry. And we can, because as Charles Spurgeon said, he carries the heavy side. He is willing to empower us through this reconciliation, through the incarnation. He is now willing to empower us, to sustain us, to comfort us, if we might only come to him. We might only avail ourselves of this. Now, it would be one thing, and a great thing at that, if an impersonal and all-powerful God rendered us aid somehow. That would still be great. But our God aids us in what he truly understands. Not only as the omniscient God who knows all things, but moreover as the God-man. He aids us in the same trials and pains which he himself experienced as a man. As a man. He truly knows suffering. Isaiah says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, even Jesus understood that theology must be practical. 
And anyone who does not make theology practical, he has the same words he said to the Sadducees to say unto us, that we do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. The power of God. That he aids us. 